0: what do you do with the Old Testament why is the Old Testament important the first two-thirds of our Bibles now that may seem like a silly question but it's actually a question that's been debated for the centuries before us thousands of years in the second century one of the church fathers named Marcion, he looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament and he said that the, the, the God we see in the Old and the New are so different. And he gathered that they were actually different gods, that the God of the New Testament was different and opposed to the God of the Old Testament. And so his conclusion was, you don't need the Old Testament. In fact, just leave it in the past, discard it. And he was condemned as a heretic in the second century. Because our church fathers, the Christian fathers and mothers of the faith at that time, they said, no, you can't throw it out. It's all scripture, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because it's the same God and it's all scripture. Now, why is the Old Testament important? If you had to sum it up, you could sum it up this way, that the Old Testament is a critical part of the story. That's what the Bible is at its essence. It's a story of God and God's people. And the Old Testament is a critical part of that story, and the story leads to Jesus. I love what Brian Zahn says. Brian Zahn, he says that the Bible is a 31,102-piece jigsaw puzzle. And he uses that number because there are 31,102 verses in the Bible. He says there's a 31,102-piece jigsaw puzzle And when you put it together, it looks like Jesus. And if after you put the Bible together, it doesn't look like Jesus, you're doing it wrong. And this is why, by the way, studying scripture, why good teaching is so important. Because it helps us see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we're changed. So you can see Jesus just from the New Testament. But the grander, the fuller, the bigger picture portrait of Christ we have, it's fuller when we understand both Old and New Testament. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, if you kind of zoom out, one of the biggest parts of the puzzle is the life of Moses. Moses occupies a whole lot of room in our Old Testament. And you could make the argument that next to Jesus... Moses is the most important character in the Bible. He's referenced more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament figure. Moses is. And for for Jews, in Jesus' day, and even today in Judaism, Moses is the pinnacle. He is so revered. Now, why is Moses so revered? Well, it's not hard to see why when you look at Moses' resume. Let me just share a few things that we see in the life of Moses in the Old Testament, Moses performed mighty miracles. Moses also delivered Israel from Egypt. Moses led God's people for 40 plus years. Moses spoke with God face to face. Moses is attributed with writing the first five books of the Bible, and Moses is the most humble person who ever lived, although he wrote that, so I don't know if if you can count it. I'm pretty sure if you call yourself humble, that doesn't count. In a first century Jewish context, one of the most staggering things that men and women read in their Bibles as it was being assembled was this line from Hebrews chapter 3 Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. You see, the things that offend us today are different (laughs) than what offend, you know, would have offended people in the first century. This was explosive. For someone to say, again, to to Jews in a Jewish context, no, Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, why is this true? Why is Jesus worthy of greater honor than Moses? And what difference does that make for you and for me today? What can we see about Jesus from the pieces of The puzzle that is Moses' life. What uh, about Moses illuminates the greatness of Jesus? And how does that make a difference in your life and in my life today? Here's what we're going to do today. We are going to look at three scenes of Moses' life. And, you know, this series is like drinking Water from a fire hose today is like drinking from a waterfall. I mean, we're, we're going to cover a lot of ground. But, but the goal is, through these three scenes, we're going to learn about Moses. And, and ultimately, what we want to learn is how Moses illuminates the greatness of Jesus. It's to see Jesus Christ today. That's, that's our goal. So we begin with our first scene. Scene one, trapped. The Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and God comes to this guy named Moses. He's 80 years old, and he's a shepherd, and God says, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, many of us, we know the line, let my people go. God says, I've heard and I've seen the affliction of my people, and go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, Moses, he does this, Pharaoh does not listen, but eventually, through severe plagues, Pharaoh, he changes his mind. He says, okay, they can leave. But but he only does that to change his mind again and chase after them. And the Israelites, they're they're nearing their exit point out of Egypt. And, And just as they're about to leave and they're coming up against the Red Sea, they turn around and the armies of Egypt are behind them. Look at the text. This is Exodus 14. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses... Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? They're freaking out, and I get it. I mean, there's an army behind them. The Red Sea's in front of them. They're trapped. But Moses, trusting God, Moses, he says this. Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. What an incredible statement. Now, what's required to be still? If you're an Israelite in that moment, think about it. What is required for you to be still? It's trust. To not run, to not panic, to be still. And this is a picture of our salvation, isn't it? God fights for us, we trust in him. That's why prophet Isaiah will say, in quietness, in rest, in trust is your Salvation. So the, the, the people, got, you know Moses, he commands the people, he says, be still, God will fight for you. And then God commands Moses, raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. The wind blows and it pierces through the sea. It divides the sea. There's a wall of water on the right and on the left, and the Israelites pass through, not on wet ground, on dry ground. Can you imagine? I imagine as they're walking through, some of them are looking to the right and left, and maybe they're seeing some of the ocean wildlife. Maybe people are dancing and celebrating. Other people are just walking and saying, don't look up, don't look, because they're terrified. They pass through the Red Sea. They get to the other side. The armies of Egypt follow after them, and many of you, you know the story. They drown in the sea, and the Israelites On the other side, the banks of the Red Sea, they celebrate and they they cry out to God and they say, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. And that leads us to our next scene, scene two. Golden cows and broken hearts. Not long after this, the people are led through the desert. Moses leads them to Mount Sinai. And, And Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with God for 40 days. And while he's away... Once again, the people freak out. We see this a lot. And they go to Aaron, and and they say, Aaron, we don't know what happened to Moses, so would you make for us gods that we can worship? And Aaron does this. He collects metal from the people. He melts it down, and he makes it into a golden calf, and they begin to worship it. Now, this feels like one of the most bizarre sequences in the Bible, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. They just saw God part the Red Sea. God was leading them, a pillar of fire through the desert. God made manna, frosted flakes, fall from the sky. (laughs) And right here, they're worshiping a golden cow. But here's what we need to see. Though the Israelites were delivered from physical slavery, they were still in spiritual bondage. You see, a change of circumstances did not produce a change in their hearts. And we see that in our own lives as well, that a change in circumstances does not mean that our hearts are changed. I I was a young adult and I thought, If I get married, I won't be insecure anymore. And then I got married, and I felt even more insecure. I remember thinking, if I have children, I'm going to be more godly. And then I had kids, and it just felt like I was more irritable, not more godly. I I I was more angry, and I got less sleep, right? I thought, you know, if I become a pastor, my spiritual life will be easier. I became a pastor, and that didn't happen. How about this one? Some of you can relate to this And I thought, if I just make a little bit more money, then I'll be content. Anybody ever thought that? And then you have a little bit more, and then guess what? You're, you're not content. You see, a, a change in our circumstances does not mean that our hearts are changed. Israel's hearts are in spiritual bondage. Listen, they've got deep seated tendencies towards idolatry, a disregard for the will and the ways of God. They don't trust God. They're in bondage. And, and make no mistake, by the way, you know, it's so easy to, to look at the Israelites and say, oh my goodness, I would never. And, and listen, spiritual bondage looks different for us today. I mean, we're too sophisticated to melt down our metal into a golden cow, but we absolutely do this. You and I, we gravitate towards worshiping what is created rather than the creator all the time. And here's what's true about spiritual bondage. For the Israelites and for us today, you cannot, when you are in spiritual bondage, you can't free yourself. It's why the very first step of recovery, if you, if you get an Alcoholics Anonymous or you're part of regeneration here at GFC, the very first step is what? It's to admit that you are powerless over your sin. The Israelites are in bondage even though they've got new circumstances. And so the first thing we need to see is this gap where they're, they're rescued physically, but spiritually they still need a rescuer. We see a gap. The story continues, and the the people's idolatry is such a big deal in the eyes of God that God says to Moses, I'm gonna wipe those people out and I'm gonna start over with you. And if I'm Moses, I'm thinking, that sounds pretty good. I mean, God, you're right, they're stiff necked, bunch of complainers. But Moses does not do that. Look at what he does, Exodus 32. Verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, Yahweh, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And then Moses calls on God to remember his covenant. For the sake of God's glory, remember your promise, keep your promise, God. And then we read this in verse 14, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. God relents. God responds to the prayer of Moses. Now, theologians debate, and it's a fun debate over, okay, did God actually change his mind? Was God just testing Moses? Surely God didn't actually respond to his prayer, and God changed his point of view. But what the text is saying, the point of the text is simply this, that that God responds to Moses' prayers for God's people. That's what this is saying. And God responds to our prayers too. When we cry out to God for people, God, the heart of God is moved. And Moses, after this with God, Moses gets down from the mountain and he is ticked. And in one of the most hilarious verses in the Bible, Moses, he goes to Aaron, he says, Aaron, what the heck, man? What? And then Aaron, he says this, he says, they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) I just think that is so funny. It sounds like kids and it's like, what, you know, what happened? Oh, dad, this, you know, you said no more screen time, but the Nintendo popped into my hands and I just started playing it. After Moses calms down, he says this, he says, you have committed a great sin which is an understatement. But now, Moses, he says to the people, he says, I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Exodus 32, if you're in your Bible, underline that word. That is so significant, atonement. This is the Hebrew word kipper, and it, it's really translated two ways. It's either to wipe clean or it's to pay a ransom, but both of the ideas there are to make something whole or complete or reconcile. You know, the the English word atonement goes back to the 13th century, and the English root of it is to simply, it's to make something at one. Think about the word atonement, at one. It's it's to reconcile something. You see, even though God has not wiped out the people, Moses knows that there is still a problem. And the problem with Israel in this moment is distance. Distance. It's distance, and this is the main issue with sin, by the way. You know, the the, the biggest problem that sin creates is not a moral penalty that we have to pay. It's distance from God, the source of all goodness and life. It's why Adam and Eve, when they leave the presence of God in the garden, they die eventually, physically, spiritually, because God is the source of all life. And sin distances us. And and Moses, he knows this. And so he says to the people, I'm gonna go and see if there's something I can do to make you and God at one to atone. And then Moses, he goes to God, he says, oh God, what a great sin have these people committed. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not then blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses, he stands in between God, a holy God, and the people, and he says, God, forgive them, but if not, then punish me. Moses did nothing wrong. He did not make a golden calf. He didn't worship it. But he says, God, I will bear the punishment for these people. Now this is an example where Moses intercedes for Israel with compassion and boldness and love, but there are plenty of other times where he does not. Let me show you just one of those. This is in the book of Numbers. Moses he he cries out to God. Numbers eleven. He says, "Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth?" It's so funny. It's like, I'm tired of being their mom, God. And then he he says, I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you are going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. You see, the, the, the problem with Moses as an intercessor as someone to make the people and God at one. The problem with Moses is that he was broken and flawed. See, Israel does need someone to intercede on their behalf with God. But it can't be Moses. Because he gets tired of the people. And he loses trust in God, as we'll see. And Moses, he's, he's not the right guy. And so there's this second gap where Israel, they need someone to intercede, but it can't be Moses. After all, Moses would eventually die. And listen, we too, we need someone to intercede on our behalf. If we as imperfect people are going to be in a relationship with a perfect and holy God, we have to have someone standing in the gap in mediating for us. There is a reason why when people encounter the presence of God, they don't say, God, how you doing? They are terrified. Like Isaiah, Isaiah comes into the presence of God and what does he say? Isaiah says, woe is me. Because he realizes in that moment all of his sin and he is in the presence of a holy God, and sin cannot stand in the presence of God. Isaiah, in that text, he has just been saying of the people of Israel, woe to you who do this, woe to you who do that, woe to you. But when he gets in the presence of God, what does he say? Woe is me. And this is one of the ways we know we've been in the presence of God. We are more concerned with our sin than we are with everybody else's sin. And the reality is, because of your sin, you have to have an intercessor. You have to have somebody mediating your relationship with God. You know, Moses, he, he interceded for the people, but he struggled. And this brings us to our third scene, on the goal line, scene three. You fast forward 40 years, and because of their unbelief, Israel's been wandering in the desert. They're almost to the promised land, but there's another test now. And the test is, there's no water. And just imagine, more than a million people, most likely, there's no water, they're thirsty, they're crying out. And then God, he responds, God says to Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Moses, he gathers the assembly together, he gets in front of them, and then he says, hear now, you rebels, Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. Moses disobeys. He does not tell the rock to yield water. He strikes it. And water comes out, and everybody drinks it, but everything is not okay. God comes to Moses and says, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses, heartbreakingly, does not get to go into the promised land. Why? Because God says he failed to believe in God. You see, Moses did not believe that God's way was the best way. He took matters into his own hands, and this is always what we do. This is the nature of sin, Adam and Eve in the garden, your sin today. We we don't trust God. We take matters into our own hands. We redefine what's good, and this is what Moses does, and you can even see in this text the pride in his heart. He says, shall we bring water for you? God is the only one who can bring water out of a rock. And tragically, because of Moses' pride and disobedience, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. You see, Moses was an incredible leader, but he had feet of clay, just like we do. Right on the goal line, he didn't make it in. And this is the third gap we see with Israel. Listen, Moses led the people out of Egypt, but he could not get them into the promised land. On the doorstep, he couldn't bring him over the goal line. So these scenes from the life of Moses, these puzzle pieces, how do they show us a portrait of Jesus? How do we see Jesus in the life of Moses? Well, like Moses, Jesus was born in grave danger under the, the reign of a murderous king. Like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt. Both of them passed through the waters. Moses through the Red Sea, Jesus through his baptism. Both of them following that experienced a time of testing. Moses for 40 years in the desert, Jesus for 40 days. So he was tempted by the devil. Both of them were prophets. Both Moses and Jesus taught people what God intended for them to do and how for, he intended for them to live. But as the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus was not equal to Moses. He was greater. So how was Jesus greater? And what difference does it make for you and for me today? I want to look at three truths about Jesus from the life of Moses as our context. Three ways that Jesus is greater than Moses today. The first is this, Jesus rescues us not just from physical slavery, but spiritual bondage. Jesus rescues us not just from physical slavery, but spiritual bondage. In Luke 9, Jesus is transfigured before the disciples. And uh, many of you, you know the story, Peter, James, and John, they're there. and, And all of a sudden, Jesus is clothed in glory, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah. They appear, and he's talking with them. And then Peter, as he tends to do, Peter stupidly opens his mouth. And Peter, he says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And I love what Luke says next. Luke says he did not know what he was saying. (laughs) I just love that. And God To to Peter's, you know, trying to be helpful, God says, no, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Now, if you know your Old Testament, when this happens in Luke 9, there's several things that are striking. First, what does God say to Peter? God says, listen to him. And that immediately echoes back from what Moses said right before his death. Moses, right before he dies, he's on the edge of the promised land. He can't go in. Moses, he he gives this prophecy in Numbers 18. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must what? Listen to him. The same exact thing that God tells Peter thousands of years later. Listen. This is what God says to us. This is God's will for you, if you're wondering, what, what, what's God's will for me? What does God want? God wants you to listen to Jesus. But the other thing that is fascinating about this story is what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about before Peter opens his mouth. We read this and Verse 30, that the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that word departure, I don't like that translation because that word is the Greek word for exodus. Jesus was talking to Moses, this is right before he goes to the cross, about his exodus, Moses knew a thing or two about an exodus. And Jesus is talking to Moses about his exodus. Now, what was the exodus that Jesus would lead? It was not to liberate them from captivity, like Moses did when they left Egypt. It was not to liberate them from Roman oppression. And that's what they wanted. What was Jesus' exodus? It was deeper. It It was an exodus of the soul, See, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he rescued all of us today, men and women throughout the ages who by faith trust in him. He rescued us from spiritual bondage. He did what Moses could never do. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, and within moments, they're building a golden cow and worshiping it. Their hearts are still broken and busted. Jesus, he liberates us from the inside out. It's a different kind of exodus. It's the exodus of the soul that we need. Do do you know that today? That, That Jesus liberates us not from physical slavery, but spiritual bondage. And yes, that's true of our salvation. But that's true of all of life, Jesus is always in the business of liberating his people. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And do you, do you know that today? Do, do you know that there are no chains that Jesus cannot break over your soul? And some of you feel today like you are in prison to an addiction, to the consequences of your past life, This is what Jesus does best, as he rescues us from spiritual bondage. The the second reason we see Jesus as a greater Moses is because Jesus perfectly intercedes for us, not just for a time, but for all of time. Jesus perfectly intercedes, not just for a time, but all of time. In Hebrews chapter 7, the, the author of Hebrews, he says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely or forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Now, we don't use that word intercede a lot. It, the context here is the tabernacle and the priesthood, it's, it's foreign to many of us. The best way to understand this idea is the courtroom where a defense attorney intercedes on their defendant's behalf using their very best logic and skill to articulate why their defendant is innocent. And this is what Moses does with God in Exodus 32. But Moses, again, Moses could never be the advocate that Israel needed, that we need. Why? Because Moses was not without sin. It's hard to be a a good defense attorney when you're also on trial. Moses was broken, but but Moses also could not be the advocate they needed because he ran out of compassion. He got tired of them. And finally, Moses eventually died. He was no longer there to represent the people. But Jesus does what Moses could not. Jesus perfectly intercedes for us, not just for a time, but for all of time. I love that the author says he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to intercede for them. A lot of times we focus on what Jesus did in the past and we focus on what Jesus will do and the present Jesus will come again. We don't, we don't focus a lot, we don't talk or think a lot about what Jesus is doing now. What is Jesus doing? Now, part of what he is doing is he is interceding for you. By grace through faith, you've trusted in Jesus, and he is, at this moment, interceding for you. And you say, well, doesn't he get tired of doing that? I mean, like Moses, does Jesus say, God, I'm so sick of these people. I'm so sick of Matt. He's struggling with these same things over and over again. Never, never. Never does Jesus get tired because the text says he always lives to intercede for you. And why is Jesus the best attorney? Because he has the best case. I mean, understand Jesus who died in your place and gave you his righteousness. There is no accusation that can be made against you from the devil, from light, from your mistakes, your own heart, any source of accusation or condemnation, it cannot stand because Jesus Jesus is defending you. Do you believe that today? Listen, if Jesus is for you, who can be against you? We we sometimes we, we say that. Do you believe it to be true? This makes all the difference in the world. If you walk out of here today and you believe that Jesus right now is interceding for you, doesn't matter what you do today, tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now, it doesn't matter. He always lives to do this. And then finally, the the third way that we see that Jesus is greater than Moses is that Jesus leads us not just out of spiritual bondage but into the presence and blessing of God. When Jesus was on the earth, the name Moses became synonymous with the Torah and the law specifically, the 613 commandments that God gave to, to Israel. And this is why Jesus, he... He says things like, If you believed Moses, you would have believed me. And Jesus isn't talking about what Moses said about the weather. You know, he's talking about what Moses wrote about the story of God's people and specifically about the law. And and Jesus says, if you believed Moses, i.e. the law, you would have believed me. Now, now, here's what's true about the law. The Old Testament law that God gave, and any kind of law that you try to keep today. Here's what's true. It cannot save you because you can never be good enough. You, you can't. The law reveals our need for an outside, for an alien righteousness to come because we can't do it. And so to use the analogy that, that we see in Scripture, the, the law, like Moses, can bring us to the edge of the promised land but it can never bring us in. I mean, understand, all of your best behavior can never bring you into the presence and blessing of God, and that's what the promised land symbolizes. I mean, the author of Hebrews, he he compares the promised land to our spiritual inheritance, and Moses can't get you there. All of your good behavior, your law-keeping, now, Who is the one who actually leads Israel into the promised land? It's not Moses. Who is it? It's Joshua. And we're going to learn more about Joshua in a couple weeks. He is so significant in the story of the Old Testament. But what I want you to know today is that Joshua, translated into Aramaic, is Yeshua. Yeshua is the name of Jesus. You see, Joshua is the Hebrew name of our Lord and Savior. Are you seeing the picture here? Following Moses, i.e. the law, it can only get you to the edge, can never bring you in. Only Jesus, the true and better Yeshua, only he can do that. Jesus leads us not just out of spiritual bondage. He doesn't just forgive us He brings us home, you understand? And again, your best efforts can never do it. It's like Moses said in Exodus 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And that's true today. All of your best behavior cannot bring you into the promised land, cannot. I mean, why do you have a hope of heaven today? And why do I? It is only because Yeshua, the greater Moses, who did what Moses failed to do, and what all of us fail to do, which is to live perfectly. So today, put all of your trust in the greater Moses. That is what we do today. Listen, we, you know, th- this message is really about seeing. It's about seeing Jesus, but in light of seeing him, we trust him. Because God, through Christ, delivered us from sin. But Jesus is the one, the only one, who grabs us by the hand and brings us into the presence and blessing of God forever. And he intercedes in our behalf. So we trust and we say, God, I trust you. And how does the greater Moses, how does he lead us in to the promised land? Well, in Numbers when Moses strikes the rock, and we talked about that, there's something significant happening because Paul will say later in the New Testament that the rock in the book of Numbers is actually Christ. Now, what in the world does that mean, that Jesus is a rock? Listen, Jesus is the one who was struck and out of him came the waters of life, see, the reason that we're able to go to the promised land, to be with Jesus forever, is because of his sacrificial love on our behalf. Isaiah says he was stricken for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. And like Moses, we were the ones who struck him. And yet, he is the same one who died on our behalf who grabs us now and says, "Come on, and he leads us. He is the greater Moses. So today, put all of your trust in Jesus. All of, if you trust him for your salvation, trust him with everything else. How can we ignore so great a salvation? Will you pray with me. God, we come to you now, and we are so grateful for Jesus and. Thank you, God, for the Bible and the way that these connections help illuminate the greatness of of Christ. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us today to see you and be compelled to trust you and to live differently. Lord, the places where we're in bondage spiritually, uh, the places where we feel afraid to be close to you, Father, because of our sin. Lord, all of those places, God, help us to see the reality of the greater Moses, that Jesus is what Moses failed to be. And so, Lord, help us to trust him. God, we sing to you now, we praise you for the cross that Jesus died on our behalf, and we lift our hearts to you, and we, we do this in Jesus' name, amen.